This is Mike Kessler, host of To Every Man Announcer here on CSN. We're not live today because of President's Day, but we wanted to bring you an important program addressing the state as our country is in here on Washington and Lincoln's birthday as we celebrate it. Our first message is going to be from our friends over at Watchmen on the Wall, where Bill Federer is going to speak about socialism, how the news media works, just a lot of great information there. This episode was originally aired on February the 1st of this year. Coming up later in the hour, we're going to hear from our friends over at Family Talk. They have an important presentation from former presidential candidate Ben Carson on how the Communist Manifesto, written over 50 years ago, is being used to undermine our country today. This episode originally aired January 3rd of this year. Later on, I'm going to tell you how you can find out more about both of these great partners. But for right now, let's get started with Watchmen on the Wall. Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Friends, we want you to make plans today to join us at one of our upcoming events. Our first event of the new year is coming up February 16th and 17th in the Tampa Bay, Florida area. And then, Lord willing, Tri-Cities, Tennessee will be next up on March 8th and 9th. Is America in Bible Prophecy? Find out from Donald Perkins on February 16th and 17th in Florida. There you'll find the latest details on the march toward a one-world system, biblical mysteries will be uncovered, and you'll learn how to have true spiritual victory in the invisible war on the saints. Biblical artifacts from Israel will be on display with an archaeologist ready to answer your questions. Friday and Saturday, February 16th and 17th at Hicks Road Baptist Church. Call 1-800-652-1144 for more information or visit the events page at swrc.com. Tickets for this special event are free, but seating is limited. Don't be left behind. Register today. 1-800-652-1144. Last October, Bill Federer was a speaker at our Columbus, Ohio conference. Today, we're going to listen to a portion of his presentation on socialism. Well, thank you, Matt, and thank each and every one of you for being here. And I'm just going to jump into my presentation. Hopefully you can see the screen. Um, so I wrote a book called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And the subtitle is How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. Saul Linsky did an interview two months before he died to Rolling Stone magazine, March 1972. He says... If there is an afterlife and I have anything to say about it, I will unreservedly choose to go to hell. Hell would be heaven for me. Once I get into hell, I'll start organizing the have-nots over there. They're my kind of people. I don't think that is what he's experiencing right now. And um, Now, it's one thing of them wanting to sow division, but they want to blame you for it. Isn't that interesting? It's called psychological projection. 
The attacker blames the victim. Blame shifting. Accuse others of what you do. And uh, it's a narcissistic, narcissistic defense mechanism to avoid responsibility. So it's built in. Little kids do it. I didn't start the fight. You did. Or a cheating spouse will accuse the faithful spouse of being unfaithful. And it's in the Bible. Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of lusting after her when she was lusting after him. And Ahab finally meets Elijah. And Ahab says, is that you, the troubler of Israel? And Elijah says, "Uh uh-uh, you got it backwards. You're the one troubling Israel with all your paganism. Jesus even references it. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but fail to notice the beam in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the beam out of your own eye. So here's somebody with a beam, that the guilty person, accusing this person that's relatively innocent. And um, the Pharisees, they saw Paul praying in the temple. And they stir up a riot. And they're pulling Paul apart. And the Romans have to rescue Paul. And so there's a trial. And the Pharisee's attorney, Tertullus, begins to accuse Paul, saying, We have found this man a pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition among the Jews, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who has gone about to profane the temple. Then Paul answered, They neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. They're the ones that started the insurrection in the capital, but they wanted to blame this innocent Paul for it. Nero set fire to Rome, but he blamed the innocent Christians. They even did it to Jesus. Here are these Pharisees, right? Their father's the devil. And and they point at Jesus and they say, he's demon-possessed. They're accusing Jesus of having a demon, and Adam did it to God himself. He blame-shifted. Adam sinned, but he says, well, it's the woman you gave me. It's it's really your fault. And so it's gotten into politics. David Axelrod was an advisor to a previous president. And on NPR radio, April 19, 2010, he says, in Chicago, there was an old tradition of throwing a brick through your own campaign office window and then calling a press conference to say you've been attacked. So you do the terrible stuff, but you accuse your innocent person. So let's say there's a a person running for president that is colluding with Russia, giving away a fifth of the U.S. uranium to Russia in exchange for a $145 million contribution to her Clinton Foundation. She wants to pay for a steel dossier to accuse her opponent of colluding with Russia. He gets smeared with it in the news for years, has to go through an impeachment trial. And when it finally gets pointed back at her... The water's muddy. The public doesn't know who to trust. And all she has to do is pay a $113,000 fine to the FEC. And then let's say there's another candidate running for president, and he's extorting Ukraine, saying, stop investigating my son Hunter, or I'm going to hold back billions of dollars of U.S. money. What do you want to do? They want to accuse his opponent of extorting Ukraine. You accuse them of the exact crime that you're guilty of. Why? Because then it gets repeated over and over again in the news. People make a mental connection. And then if it ever gets pointed back at the real guilty person, by that time the water's muddied, the public's worn out on the issue, and you get a pass. I'm convinced they knew that Biden had classified documents illegally in his garage next to his Corvette. And they knew it was going to become public knowledge. And so, and they, you know, 
and Pence had documents. And, all. and so they intentionally staged a very, very public, visible raid to get Trump's papers for so, the sole reason of headlines. That's all they wanted it for. They, they, they knew the papers were there. They went there, they checked on the papers. They said, oh, put another locket. They knew all of it. They just wanted headlines. So that it would be this big splash, and everybody would say, documents, Trump, documents, Trump, documents. And then when it finally comes out, well, Biden had documents, Pence had documents. By that time, it's like, oh, it's, it's old news. And so, so we see this sowing of division, but the sowing of division and them wanting to blame you for it, this projection. And then it even takes another step up with something called false flags. Now, what's that? It's a pirate term. I spoke in Beaufort, North Carolina, to a large political group, and they had tables of judges and congressmen and everything, and it was right there on the coast. It was a really cool facility because the back was all windows, and there's the waves of the ocean. And um, this is near Okra, where Blackbeard sank his Queen Anne revenge pirate ship. So the British began to crack down on pirates, and he had a bunch of ships, and so he sort of wanted to downsize, and so he decided he was going to run one of his ships aground there. And um, so the locals have a museum, and the one guy that ran the museum was like driving me around town. And he said, you know, the pirates really didn't want to fight because if they got wounded, there's no pirate hospitals. <laughs> and... Um, and they didn't want to blow up the booty they're trying to get anyway. So the whole goal was to psychologically shock and awe, get them into fear and panic so they just hand over their booty. And so the false flag was they would raise a flag of a friendly nation in distress. And so there's a ship coming by and they look through their telescope. Oh, look, there's a friendly nation in distress. And they would get closer and closer and closer. And they would get too close to be able to get away quickly. And all of a sudden, this really fast pirate ship would take down the friendly flag in distress, put up the pirate flag, and these people would be like, oh, no. And the pirate ship would like zip over there. And Blackbeard was like six foot eight. He had this big mop of hair, this big black beard. And he would take the wicks that you would light the cannons with. He'd light him on fire and stick him in his beard and in his hair so he was like this big smoking demon. He'd have his pistols in his hand, his dagger in his teeth, and the pirates would jump on and they'd be like, ah, just take my money, just let me live, just leave me alone. So it was a psychological operation. And so this false flag got put into political and military use. And so I put together for you a string of these stories, and one is... The king of Sweden. Sweden used to be a big country, and it controlled parts of Russia and Latvia and Estonia and the Baltic. And the um, the king of Sweden, Gustav III, wanted to have his parliament approve money so he could fight the Russians. But the parliament was like, hey, everything's fine. We don't need to fight. And so the king of Sweden decided to have the tailor of the Royal Swedish Opera sew Russian uniforms and had his Swedish soldiers put on the Russian uniforms and attack a Swedish outpost at Pumala. And suddenly, the news spreads with panic. The Russians had attacked. The Russians, we saw them. They were in the Russian uniforms. The Russians attacked. And it, and it gets all the way to Stockholm, and the parliament's like, oh, okay, they just approved the funding. 
And this happened again with the Gleiwitz incident, 1939. Germans, Nazis wanted to invade Poland. And world public opinion would have viewed the Germans as the aggressors. And so the Nazis had their soldiers dress up in Polish uniforms and attack a German outpost at Gleiwitz that happened to have a radio tower. And the radio announcer is giving play-by-play reports. And the Polish are shooting us, and the Polish are, and the Polish are over here, and the Polish are... And it, it spreads across Germany in a world that the Polish had attacked, and the Nazis like, well, you started it, and they invade Poland and take it over in 1939 when the Nazis did the whole thing. And um, the um, Soviets did it in 1939, too. So they wanted to invade Finland, and world public opinion wouldn't support it. And so the Soviets shell one of their own Russian villages on the Finnish border. And the news picks it up. The Finns had shelled this Russian village. And that provided the excuse for the, the Soviets to say, well, you started it. And they invade Finland in the Winter War of 1939. Japan did a similar thing. They were growing an imperialistic power, taking over all kinds of countries, and they were able to get a railroad on a very you know, small part of China. And they claim that there was a railroad explosion in 1931 at Mukden. And so the Japanese invade China, and they go to Nan- Nanking, China, and they kill 100,000 Chinese. And then afterwards, there's an international investigation. They walk the entire railroad line, and there was no explosion. What, maybe a missing spike or something? The whole thing was completely fabricated. And then Turkey. Am am I going too fast? I've got my little clock here, and it's like clicking away. So I'm like, how can I get through all this? So um, Turkey, uh, the Ottoman Empire ended. And they got a leader named Ataturk, who was moderate. He outlaws Sharia. He outlaws the beards and the fezes and the burqas and the first one to let women get an education. And uh, he said that Mohammedism is nothing more than Arab politics. And he, he dies in 1938. Well, now it's 1955. And you got a Turkish leader named Menderes. And he wants to go back to the Sultan's era of this Islamic uh, empire. And so the there's a remnant Greek Orthodox community in Constantinople, now called Istanbul. And um, the uh, plan was to have a Turkish university student put a bomb in the home of Ataturk, which is over in Greece, and in the Turkish consulate, which is over in Greece. The bombs never went off. But the newspapers ran with the story anyway. A bomba, right? And it whips the people of Istanbul into a frenzy and they attack the Greek Orthodox neighborhoods, and they pillage it, they loot it, they rob it, they set it on fire, they kill people, they destroy 80 ancient churches. And, um, and then Erdogan did a similar thing. So he runs to be president of Turkey as a secular person, and uh, this is what The Economist magazine said. Democracy is like a train, said Mr. Erdogan. Once you get off, once you've reached your destination. So he gets democratically elected, but once he's in, he begins to act like a dictator. And so there's a growing anti-Erdogan movement. And he doesn't like that. And so he stages a coup against himself. 
and he flies up in a circle and then lands, and then he pulls out a list of 30,000 of his political opponents, and he has them zip-tied, taken away, and they've not been seen since. And so this is the tactic where you do something and you blame it on the innocent people as your excuse to get rid of them. So Stalin, 1934, and he's killing thousands of people. And so there's a growing anti-Stalinist movement. And at the same time, Stalin has a friend, Sergei Kirov, who's the party boss of Leningrad. And he's giving speeches praising Stalin, and he's getting a little too popular for Stalin's comfort. They even built a statue to Sergei Kirov. So Stalin had an idea. He would assassinate his friend, Sergei Kirov, and eliminate a potential rival, and blame the assassination on the anti-Stalinists. Everybody would believe it, because the anti-Stalinists didn't like Stalin, and they didn't like Sergei Kirov defending Stalin. Stalin used this as an excuse to have some hearings, to do some questioning, to bring in people, to arrest people, to detain people, and to lock them away, and to kill over a million people in the first great purge in 1936-38. And Germany did a similar thing. So it was a republic in the 1920s, early 30s, a republic, and people voted, and they had parties, and one of the parties was the National Socialist Workers' Party, and the head of it was Hitler. And this party had a under-the-table violent group, sort of like people pretty much connect the dots that Antifa and BLM are under the table connected with the Democrat Party. And so Hitler's under-the-table group was called the Brown Shirts, nicknamed Sturmabteilung, which means stormtroopers, because they would storm into the meetings of Hitler's opponents and disrupt the meeting. And then they would lock arms and block access to public buildings. Could you imagine people locking arms in public and blocking things? Then they blocked streets. And then they went into the cities and they smashed windows and looted and set on fire over 7,500 stores owned by Jews in the night of broken glass, Kristallnacht. And then, oh, did I mention their capital got set on fire? There was an insurrection. And evidence points to Hitler's own people setting the fire. But in the confusion, Hitler accuses his political opponents of doing it. And he decides he's going to have some hearings. And he's going to start questioning people. And he's going to start detaining people and arresting people. And he shot them without a trial. And when the dust settles, Hitler didn't have any political opponents left. You know, Tucker Carlson played the video of the very first people into the U.S. Capitol. And uh, they're all dressed in black with tactical gear. And they come in in a military formation. wearing full tactical body armor and is carrying a baseball bat. Yeah, so there, there wasn't like Trump supporters that were wearing like full tactical armor and baseball bats dressed in black, you know, with their faces covered at the rallies. Like, where did these guys come from? And then it comes out that there were FBI operatives in the crowd and lots of FBI operatives. And then there's Ray Epps. And he was even on video saying, we got to break into the Capitol. And then he's down there in front. They have video of him removing the barricades. And then his text saying, I'm orchestrating the whole thing. And in this picture, to the side of him is a guy with a ball cap. And he was seen at all of the Antifa BLM riots that destroyed like 60 cities across the country. And so it looks very much like this was a planned event 
very similar to Hitler wanting to get rid of his political opponents, Stalin wanting to get rid of his political opponents. You stage something that you can blame on innocent people for your goal of getting rid of them. And then you go from that to global. And so uh, Impermiss Magazine had the article, and they quoted Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, Theory of Mallory, right? And the, if the past five centuries in Europe and America have taught us anything, it is that acute crises contribute to boosting the power of the state. And so they now want to have global crises. You know, it's interesting, Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal, and uh, he's not known for making religious statements, but just last November, he spoke at Stanford, and he said this, the zeitgeist on the other side, and zeitgeist is the attitude or the worldview. The zeitgeist on the other side is, we are not going to make it for another century on this planet, and therefore we need to embrace a one-world totalitarian state right now. And he goes on, whatever the dangers are in the future, we need never underestimate the danger of a one-world totalitarian state. And then he quotes scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5.3, the political slogan of the Antichrist is peace and safety. I want to suggest we would do well to be a little more scared of the Antichrist and a little less scared of Armageddon. What's he talking about? Don't be scared of the world ending and, oh, climate crisis, we got, oh, healthcare crisis, oh, financial crisis, hurry. And, and he says, be scared of the people that promise to save us from that world ending. Right? All these people that come in on the white horse, oh, we'll save you, just give us all your freedoms, right? And because they're sort of the ones behind there creating this crisis so that you can, like Machiavelli, right? And um, so the, the globalist tactic is they want to get the whole world into fear. Financial fear, healthcare fear, food shortage fear, economic, you know, central bank digital currency fear. They want to get everybody into fear so that they'll panic and surrender their freedom to the state. And the Lord's response is fear not. Fear not. Every book in the Bible, fear not. The angel appears, fear not. Um, perfect love casts out fear. And so the battle is a psychological battle over our mind. Are we going to walk in fear or are we going to walk in faith? And um, and then here's an observation. As, as more power concentrates into fewer hands globally, God's counterbalance is to get more people involved locally. Right? More and more power is getting into hands of fewer and fewer hands globally. God's counterbalance is to get more and more of us involved locally. Right? It's not saying, oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and take us. It's like, who do you think you're going to meet when you go up there, Jesus? You think he's going to ask you, why were you silent when all this wicked stuff was going on? So whether we turn it around or not, let's try, right? And, uh, and so one of the stories in the Bible is it was getting really bad in Israel, and they had a wicked king named Manasseh, sacrificing kids to Moloch, all right? The prophets come to him and say, you are doing the same thing that the people that were here before Israel were doing, the Canaanites, and sacrificing kids to Moloch. And the prophets say, I brought Israel in to judge them, and since you're doing the same thing, I'm going to judge you and drive you out. So the judgment was pronounced. But then Manasseh has a grandson named Josiah. And he's a teenager, starts to seek the Lord. He's early 20s. He tells him to clean out the temple that his granddad had trashed. And they come out with the law of God. Josephus said it was the last copy of the law because Manasseh was destroying the law, and it was the original one Moses had wrapped in burlap, burlap in a storage room. And the priests read it, and they go, this is pretty important. They read it to this young king. He hears it for the first time in his life, and he rips his garments and repents. And he sends to a prophetess in town named Holda, the wife of the king's tailor. 
And she had a reputation of hearing from God. And the messengers say, well, the king wants to know what's going to happen. And she said, tell the man that sent you that judgment is coming. But not during his lifetime. Because he repented when he heard the words of the Lord. I'm going to end with this thought. Someday you're going to be dead. It's a nice way to end the talk. And, uh, and you're going to be in heaven because you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for all your sins. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, with no less days to sing his praise than when we just begun. Imagine you have been in heaven for 10,000 years. You're walking the streets of gold. You meet Moses. Maybe Moses will invite you over to his place. I don't know what it's like, but Jesus said in my father's house there are many mansions, so I bet Moses will have a pretty nice place. And so you show up, and there's lots of people. Maybe it's a big room like this size. And um, uh, I heard uh, Moses will probably have one of those big fireplaces where the logs don't burn up. Get it? The burning bush in the wilderness didn't burn up and the logs in the fireplace. I heard one preacher say, in heaven you will travel as fast as you think. And I'll probably show up late. My wife will say, where were you? I was thinking about something else. (laughs) But imagine we all get there, and after the small talk's over, Moses is sitting right in front of you. You tap him on the shoulder, say, Moses, I read the book. I even saw the movie. But here you are in person. The room will get quiet. Moses will stand up, and he goes, I was 80 years old, and it looked bad. Pharaoh, the most powerful military leader in the world, was charging in, and we were totally unarmed. And I just had my staff, I said, God, use me to deliver your people. The waves came in and swallowed up Pharaoh's chariots. We're going to say, wow. Then we're going to see David. Say, David, David, tell us your story. The room gets quiet. David stands up. He goes, I was just a teenager. And this giant Goliath was mocking our God and making fun of our faith. And all these grown-ups are too chicken. And I said, enough of that. Took my little sling wind out there and hit him in the head. Took his own sword and chopped his head off. And one by one, Gideon, the Apostle Paul, Deborah. It's going to be real exciting. And then everyone in the room is going to look at you. Say, you, we haven't heard from you yet. Tell us your story. What did you do when it was your turn to be down there on earth? What were they saying about God in your country? Or the baby that the Lord knew in the mother's womb? Or Genesis where God made them male and female? What did you do when the whole world was against you and they're all sitting on the edge of their seat? What are you going to say? You know, I'd hate for any of us to be up there and Jesus walk in the room and him saying... Um, you know, uh, and he pulls the screen down, but all kinds of great things happen and people come to the Lord and miracles and him saying, this is what I had planned for you to do down on earth, but you just didn't have enough faith and courage. And you look back at your life and that mountain that held you back was a little anthill, the fear of man. What are people going to say about me? Are they going to post something bad or are they going to unfriend me? You say, I let that fear of man hold me back from doing all this great stuff for Jesus. And you can't go back to earth and do anything else because you're already in heaven because you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for all your sins. But guess, guess what? We're still on this earth. We still have breath in our lungs. We still have feet that trod the soil. You still can do those things you'll be known for forever. Out of all the world's history, the good Lord chose for you to be alive right now. He knows every dirty backroom deal. He knows all those wicked secret societies. He knows all that. And he thinks you've got what it takes. He's given you his word. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you great churches, given you great friends, given you a great Southwest Radio Church ministry, right? This is your chance to shine, right? It's like a basketball game. Jesus is the coach and you're on the bench and he slaps you on the back and says, okay, your turn, right? Get in the game. 
And you're like, but coach, they're playing really tough out there. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, it's your turn. Get in the game. And you're like, but coach, somebody just got knocked down. And he goes, yeah, you're seven feet tall. They're four feet tall. You can do this. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Though a thousand fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, it shall not come nigh thee. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raise up a standard against him. This is your chance to do all those great things for the Lord. Right? So I'll end with that. God bless you. We've been listening to a portion of a presentation Bill Federer gave at our Columbus, Ohio Prophecy Conference last October. The entire presentation on socialism is now available on DVD. Call and order your copy when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order on our website, swrc.com. Also available for the first time is the entire conference. All 12 speakers, 20 total presentations, one complete DVD set. Part of the complete set is Jonathan Kahn's special presentation on the Josiah Manifesto. Order the complete Columbus Conference DVD set today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Tomorrow... Clayton Van Huss will reveal the prophecy of the star and the scepter. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit SWRC.com. That was Watchmen on the Wall with Bill Federer speaking about the evils of socialism. Now we're going to get to Family Talk, where former presidential candidate Ben Carson is going to teach us about communism. Let's go to that now. Well, greetings, everyone, and welcome to Family Talk. I'm Dr. James Dobson, and I am so glad that you've joined us today. Now, the program you're about to listen to is from a recent event here in Colorado Springs. It features a presentation given by Dr. Ben Carson, who's a good friend of mine. He speaks from the heart, and I hope that you'll be encouraged by his message that you're going to hear today. Now, Dr. Ben has had quite an impressive career. Not all of it I would have time to mention, but here are a few notable points for you to become more familiar with. He has dedicated his life to helping children with his medical career. Now Ben Carson is a retired neurosurgeon, and in 2016 he was a candidate for the office of President of the United States of America. And there is so much more to say, but without further ado, let's join Dr. Ben Carson for his presentation here on Family Talk. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Candy and I are absolutely delighted to be here. And, um, you know, I have to make a little confession before we start. Everybody does disclaimers these days. Have you noticed that? 
They say, I'm a member of this board or I belong to this organization, so you have to take everything with a grain of salt. My disclaimer is I am not politically correct. So, uh, that doesn't mean I intentionally try to insult people. I don't. I actually go out of my way not to do that. But have you noticed these days that you can't speak to a group of people without offending somebody? And, uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, they had this saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. They don't teach that to the kids anymore. Now they say, go to your safe space. And what kind of people are we bringing up when we do things like that? It's a serious, serious issue. But I actually believe that we're in the closing days of this earth's history. Now, if you read the Bible and it talks about what things are going to be like in the last days, I think we're there. And uh, it would be like in the days of Noah, where there was constant evil everywhere. We have drag queens in front of our little elementary kids. Think about what it must be like. If the Lord doesn't come back soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But uh, I think he is coming back soon. And the question is, what do we do while we wait? What do we do in our spheres of influence? And do we truly recognize the things that are happening? You know, the American dream is something that is so precious. You can go to any part of the world and they will tell you about the American dream. There's no other country that has a dream. We're the only ones. And part of that is because of the way that we were formulated. You know, we had some tremendous founders. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, all of these guys, they were very smart. And they studied every governmental system that ever existed in the history of the world. Why? Because they wanted to extract the best parts, leave the bad parts out. One of the things that became clear to them is that all governments end up essentially the same. It doesn't matter how they start. It doesn't matter how lofty their intentions are. They grow, they infiltrate, and they dominate. So they wanted to come up with a constitution that would prevent that from happening and that would maintain a free society for the people. Now, the Europeans thought we were nuts. They said, you cannot run a country on the will of the people. You have to have a monarch. You have to have a ruling structure. But they were determined to come up with it. And during the 1787 Constitutional Convention, there was so much arguing and fighting. The whole thing was about to fall apart. And the elder statesman, 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin, got up and he said, Gentlemen, stop. Let's get down on our knees and let's seek wisdom from God. And they knelt down and they prayed and they got up and they finished the Constitution of the United States, which I think was a divinely inspired document if we're willing to follow it. But when Franklin came out of the building, he was asked, Sir, what do we have? A monarchy or a republic? 
And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. We're as close right now to losing it as we have ever been. And we all have a role to play. We all have a sphere of influence that can help to maintain that type of republic that we have with fairness and justice for everybody. But, you know, I had a dream. My American dream was to be a doctor. I loved medicine. It didn't matter what it was. Dr. Casey, Dr. Kildare, man, I was all over that stuff. I even liked going to the doctor's office. I would gladly have a shot just so I could smell the alcohol swabs. Anything, anything that had to do with medicine. Maybe not a COVID shot, but, uh, <laughs> it's not that I'm anti-vax. I'm not anti-vax by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, I do believe in real science. And, you know, it's interesting. We have people advocating that children should be vaccinated for COVID. Children who have a 0.025% chance of death or major morbidity if they get COVID. And you have no idea what the long-term effects of these vaccines are. And here's the good thing. Only 13% of adults had their kids vaccinated. That means the American people are a lot smarter than you give them credit for. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to know that. But, you know, my dream was unfortunately derailed by the fact that I was a terrible student. And uh, my mother was extremely concerned. And my mother was next to God, the most important factor in my early life because, you know, she was from a huge family and uh, got married at age 13, achieved less than a third grade education, and then discovered that her husband was a bigamist some years after marriage. And she was so affected by that, she was so depressed that she actually tried to commit suicide. Took a handful of pills, and fortunately was found before she died. They pumped her stomach and got her to school. But if she'd been successful, uh, I certainly wouldn't have been standing here today. You know, the Lord intervenes in our lives, and he has plans, and they go far beyond the plans that we have. But we all encounter people who are in desperate situations, and we need to do something about it. When she was in the hospital, she met a woman, a Christian woman, who really introduced her in a serious way to the Lord. And it made a tremendous difference in the rest of her life. And uh, even when I was this terrible student, she was always the one who was saying, Benjamin, you're much too smart to be bringing home grades like this. I brought them home anyway. But she was always having... You know, these things to say and being encouraging while everybody was teasing me about being a dummy. But I did admire the smart kids. I would never tell them that I admired them, but I did. This one kid was the smartest kid around. His name was Steve. And he would always come up to you after a test and put his A in your face and say, let me see yours, let me see yours. You wanted to let him see it, all right. But, uh, <laughs> but... I would always say to myself, not to him, 
He's the same age as I am. How does he know all this stuff? How can he be so smart? And I really was very impressed with him. But I wasn't very impressed with myself. I didn't think that I was smart either. But when my mother prayed and asked for wisdom, God gave it to her, or at least in her opinion. My brother and I didn't think it was wise at all. I mean, turning off the TV and making us read books and submit to her written book reports that she couldn't read. We didn't think that was smart. But we didn't know she couldn't read them. But interestingly enough, even though I hated it in the beginning, I actually began to love reading those books because between the covers of those books, I could go anywhere, I could be anybody, I could do anything. And poverty was gone for that time while I was in that book. But I started reading about incredible people, entrepreneurs, explorers, scientists, and surgeons. And as I read about their lives, it dawned on me that the person who has the most to do with what happens to you in life is you. It's not somebody else. I stopped listening to all the negativity and the people who were saying, you can't do this and the system's against you. I just threw all that stuff in the garbage. Started thinking about what I could do. I was always reading. If I had five minutes, I was reading a book. I became the bookworm. And within the space of a year and a half, I went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class. And I remember going up to Steve after a test. And I said, Steve, how'd you do in the test? And he poked out his chest. He said, I got a 91. And I said, well, gee, that's too bad. I got a 100. (laughs) And I I said, "Uh, next time if you need help, let me know. I was probably a little obnoxious. But, you know, here's the key thing. I had the same brain when I was at the bottom of the class that I had at the top of the class. Exactly the same brain but a different attitude. What does that tell us about our responsibility to develop the intellect of the people in our spheres of influence? And certainly those people who are within our household. But, you know, when you start thinking about the human brain, you realize that we are made in the image of God. Think about the human brain. Billions and billions of of neurons hundreds of billions of interconnections. It remembers everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever heard. Your brain can process two million bits of information in one second. You can't overload it. People tell you you're going to overload your brain. You can't overload the brain. If you learn one new fact every second, it would take you more than three million years to challenge the capacity of your brain. That is an incredible thing. And think about how quickly it develops. You got a male gamete with 23 chromosomes, female gamete with 23 chromosomes, neither one of which has the ability to become a human being. And then fertilization occurs. They fuse together and all of a sudden you've got a zygote, 46 chromosomes, complete genetic map for a human being. Not part of the mother, not part of the father, a new individual whose brain is developing with millions of new neurons every single day. Within six to eight weeks, you see little eye buds, little ear buds, little fingers and toes, and a heart that's beating. It's hard to say that that is not a human being. And voila, nine months, out pops this little energetic ball of energy, 
pooping and peeing and eating, but it's so cute you don't care. But that brain is still developing at a rapid rate, even at that point. That's why babies sleep so much. Newborns sleep 20 to 22 hours a day because that brain is continuing to develop. And it continues to develop right into your 20s. Your brain does not mature until then. Some people will even beyond that. But, uh, but think about where we are as a society. When we expect children with immature brains to make life-altering decisions about whether they're a male or a female. Think about that. Isn't that the reason that God gave children parents? To protect them from people who would take advantage of their immature brains, of their natural curiosity, of their suggestibility. And as Charlie was saying, you know, we have responsibility We need to speak out against these kinds of things that are occurring uh, in our society. And as we're becoming more secular, look what's happening to us. Increased crime, increased hatred, increased immorality, all kinds of things. Our families are falling apart. There's only 23.1 million traditional nuclear families left in our country. And some people say that this is all of recent origin. But uh, I would have to take exception to that. It's not of recent origin. And if you look at the congressional record from January the 10th, 1963, congressional record, extension of remarks of Honorable A.S. Herlong, Jr. of Florida in the House of Representatives, it gives the 45 goals of communism in America over 60 years ago. I'm not going to read all 45, but just a sampling, like number 17, get control of the schools. Use them as transmission belts for socialism and current communist propaganda. Soften the curriculum, get control of teacher associations, put the party line in textbooks. Number 20, infiltrate the press. Get control of book review assignments, editorial writing, policy-making positions. Gain control of key positions in random TV and motion pictures. Continue discrediting American culture. 24, eliminate all laws governing obscenity by calling them censorship and a violation of free speech and free press. Break down cultural standards of morality by promoting pornography and obscenity in books, magazines, motion pictures, radio, and TV. Present homosexuality, degeneracy, promiscuity as normal, natural, and healthy. Infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion with social religion. Discredit the Bible and emphasize the need for intellectual maturity, which does not need a religious crutch. Number 40, discredit the family as an institution. Encourage promiscuity and easy divorce. Emphasize the need to raise children away from the negative influence of parents. Attribute prejudices, mental blocks, and retarding of children to suppressive influence of parents.
that sound like stuff that's going on? They've been working at it for a while. You know, we think we won the Cold War, but they were planting the seeds of the destruction of our society, of the fundamental change of our society many, many years ago. That's why Khrushchev said to Eisenhower, your grandchildren's children will live under our system and we won't have to fire one shot. Because we're being played, we're being manipulated. And it's so important that we actually understand that that's what's happening to our nation if we're going to make a change. And then there's such a big push to eliminate our faith, our Judeo-Christian values, our belief in God. You know, as a person who grew up with a scientific background, I had an interesting perspective as I listened to the professors talk about ways that we didn't need God. And these are people who claim to be scientists, talking about things like the Big Bang Theory. There was nothing, and then there was something, and then there was a Big Bang, and everything was organized perfectly into our solar system. I mean, how... Well, I don't want to say stupid, but... I mean, that is ridiculous, especially if you apply science, like the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, which says things move toward a state of disorganization. They're saying there's a big explosion and everything becomes perfectly organized. And I've asked some Nobel Prize winning particle and nuclear physicists to explain that. And their answer always comes down to, well, we don't understand everything. And I say, I don't know that you understand anything, quite frankly. And then there there are the atheists who think that people who believe in God are total idiots. I was uh, once uh, involved in a public debate in Hollywood. Uh, It was myself and Francis Collins on the side of believing in God and Richard Dawkins and David Dennett on the side of the atheists. And at the end of the discussion, I said to Dawkins, you win because you've convinced me I came from God and you came from a monkey. (laughs) And of course the audience just died. He was mortified. But... uh, it's kind of true. But they do have their gods, like environmentalism. You know, at uh, at UNC last night, there was a student who stood up in the middle of my presentation and started talking about climate change. And, um, you know, I just told him he needed to respect his fellow students and sit down and wait until Q&A which he was embarrassed enough that he did. But when he came back and he asked, do you or do you not believe in climate change and that we're contributing to the downfall of man with all the things we're doing? Well, of course, God told us to take care of our environment. I said, we have a responsibility to take care of the environment for ourselves and for those who are coming after us. 
But I said, the climate is always changing. I said, when the climate stops changing, we all die. And of course, the whole auditorium broke out in laughter, and he was so embarrassed he went and sat down at that point. But that is their God, climate change. They try to sort of connect everything to that in order to be able to control it. Because if you accept what they have to say, then you have to accept their solutions for it. And their solutions are solutions that control you. Solutions like everybody has to drive an electric car by 2035. Even though there's no infrastructure to support the driving of electric cars. And telling us that fossil fuels are causing all the problems when we've learned how to extract fossil fuels and use them in a way that has given us the cleanest air and water that we've ever had. They don't think about those kinds of things. What a thought-provoking presentation from Dr. Ben Carson. If you missed any part of this program, by the way, remember you can always listen again on our website at drjamesdobson.org forward slash family talk. You can also listen on the JDFI Family Talk app. I'm Roger Marsh, and on behalf of everyone here at the JDFI, may God continue to richly bless you and your family as you grow deeper in relationship with Him. This has been a presentation of the Dr. James Dobson Family Institute. Hey everyone, Roger Marsh here for Family Talk. Where can you go to receive support and advice for you and your family? Family Talk interacts with millions of people every day with inspiring advice and tips from Dr. James Dobson on what matters to you the most. Whether it's marriage or parenting, you can be sure our Facebook page will keep you updated with how your family can succeed. Join us each day for the latest broadcast, resources, and inspiration. Nowhere else can you hear a thought of the day from Dr. Dobson, as well as a special message before you say goodnight. Now, you can be sure that every post on our page is created with you and your family in mind. So please take the time to visit us and become part of our online community at Facebook.com slash Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. That's Facebook.com slash Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. I want to talk with you today about four growth patterns in the early teen years that have significance for self-confidence. First, there's the late maturing boy who is keenly aware that all his friends have grown up. He may be interested in sports, but finds it difficult to compete with the larger, stronger boys. He's actually shorter than most of the girls for a couple of years. It's a painful period of life. The road isn't much easier for the late maturing girl. She's flat-chested and immature long after her friends have begun developing. She's playing with Barbie dolls when others are becoming women. Third, the early maturing girl also can have some struggles. Since girls tend to blossom a year or two before boys, the girl who enters puberty before her friends is miles ahead of everyone, and it's simply not acceptable to be boy-crazy and precocious at 9 or 10 years of age. The only child to have an advantage is the early maturing boy. He often enjoys strength at a time when power is everything. His early development puts him on a par with the girls in his class, and he has that field all to himself. 
Research confirms that the early maturing boy has a social advantage throughout the adolescent years and that the benefits of that status can be traced well into adulthood. Now, there's not much that parents can do to change these patterns, but it does help to understand what your boy or girl is dealing with. To find out how you can partner with Family Talk, go to drjamesdobson.org. That was Family Talk, featuring Ben Carson talking about the evils of communism. Again, that was part one of a three-part series called Advocating for Our Country and Freedoms. You can find parts two and three on www.drjamesdobson.org. That's www.drjamesdobson.org. Family Talk can be heard every weekday at 7.30 a.m. and 11.30 p.m. We want to thank both Family Talk and Watchmen on the Wall for being on CSN and for doing this important work. Please tune in tomorrow. We will be back live and ready to answer your Bible questions.